This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Security cameras. Bogeyman. Wade Rocket. And the Eggnog Riot. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But what's that? When we entered the gaming hut, a camera on the wall turned to follow us. And look, here are some images of us thumping our miniatures and eating extra Doritos when Peter Frampton wasn't looking. <laughs> yeah, if, if you zoom in on the JPEG in high resolution, you exactly. can Exactly. Enhance. It. Uh, enhance, 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 enhance. stolen the Doritos. Stolen the Doritos. It, it is a surveillance-equipped, a panoptical episode, if you will, of the gaming hut, because the question is, among the things that spoil gaming, the leading, of course, is the cell phone. It wrecks everything from narrative to the actual play experience, but... Second movies, behind that's why it. the Coen brothers never said a movie after the invention of the cell phone. Right, right, and good for them. They're heroes, I say, heroes. And so um, uh, the second one is omnipresent surveillance, because we get the security tapes is such a lazy, uninteresting way to do investigations that you cannot even begin to say how lazy it is, except I guess we are beginning to say, because we're saying, how do we fix that, Robin? How do we incorporate a security camera, an omnipresent security state, a little closed-circuit uh, bubble, like in the roof of every Vegas casino, how do we incorporate that into a mystery scenario? Uh, well, it's interesting that you should mention Vegas, because uh, uh, one of the details from the uh, horrible mass shooting in Vegas is that, surprisingly, they uh, do not have the security camera footage that you would assume they would have of someone uh, bringing an arsenal of rifles into a hotel room would leave behind. And yeah. it turn, turns out uh, that the placement of security cameras, even in casinos, which we think of as the very height of surveillance, uh, you know, gridded out every single area possibly seen, is not about theft prevention, is not pointed at places where crimes are committed. Even in casinos, it's not mostly there to catch people cheating. Not saying that doesn't happen, but 
For every dollar they save catching a cheater, they save $10 avoiding a personal injury liability lawsuit. <laughs> so they have the cameras trained on areas where slip and falls are likely to take place, where they are like, likely going to need evidence to show in court. And of course, in a horrible irony, the uh, security camera footage they do have of that guy is from a past incident where he attempts a slip and fall in the uh, in the casino and you see him go down and that's a place where people fall over. But uh, guess what? If your occult event or uh, murder or whatever it is that is just a matter of getting the security cam footage uh, did not take place in an area that is prone to that sort of personal injury uh, lawsuit. I, it's not in a set of marble stairs, but it's just on in an anonymous hallway where uh, no one is going to trip on anything. There probably isn't a camera there. So if you, uh, first of all, reorient yourself to that uh, idea of why security cameras are mostly in place in private uh, businesses, uh, you have all sorts of uh, possibilities for uh, dark spaces where uh, things will not be caught on camera. So that's now that may or may not work in a given Vegas hotel. It historically did not work in the Al Bustan Rotana Hotel in Dubai in 2010 when Mahmoud Al Mabu, a terrorist, um, certainly a Hamas figure of great uh, import, was uh, assassinated in his hotel room by Mossad. And Mossad, <laughs> perhaps having read that article before it was published in their Mossad way, believed that there would be no security footage in the hallway. And guess what? There was security footage in the hallway. So uh, that picked them out. Well, what that tells us yeah. is that security camera placement is unpredictable and uh, arbitrary, <laughs> arbitrary, meaning that as a creator of a mystery, the cameras are there when you need them and uh, could well be absent when you don't. That it's uh, so uh, you don't have to uh, every time come up with the, oh, well, they didn't change. There was a malfunction and they didn't change the tapes or it was just a fake camera, which or there was uh, a fat guy getting his money out of the ATM. So the ATM camera was blocked. Right. So you can justify that. But uh, part of uh, having security cameras that the reason that players ask is there security camera footage is sometimes they want there to be security camera footage. So the trick then is to uh, have something on the footage that takes them somewhere, but doesn't immediately take them from the first scene of the mystery to the end of the mystery without all of the intervening rest of the session that contains the entertainment. And so there might be uh, footage of the uh, assailant, but of course... An intelligent uh, bad guy will know that there is uh, security camera footage, so he might be disguising himself, wearing a fake beard. Uh, and But maybe there's something else, though, a, a, another mistake that he's made, not something that immediately gives away his identity. But, you know, oh, here's this jacket that he stole from a uh, security company, uh, is has an old uh, logo on it, and therefore can't have been taken from the uh, current inventory, where else would we go to look for a, uh, uh, a no longer used version of the security company's jacket? And, and that leads us into the notion that the security camera footage provides, provides a clue or a, a direction for more play rather than short-circuiting the story. Because if a vampire does it, Maybe the guy just dies right there in the middle of space and, you know, starts thrashing his arms around and drops dead on the bed. And you're like, but the maid said she saw someone on that floor 
and how come there's no one on the camera? <gasps> it's a vampire. Or uh, like you say that uh, he's got the wrong logo on his jacket or as in Ocean's Eleven, does it say Bellagio on the floor of the, of the vault? And it's like, that's how you know that they did a fake vault uh, bit. Or they may have left some um, method by which they defeated the security cameras behind a, um, uh, a repeater, one of those little cameras that fits over the camera, you know, jar of spray paint. Maybe, you, uh, the, the security camera goes out and, uh, the last thing that you see is the, 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 someone locks eyes with it and then it, you know, goes out and it's like, can someone, you know, stop a security camera by looking at it? Are they psychic? Are they got, you know, basilisk eyes? What's going on? The copies of us. A today laid out before all of the uh, doors are uh, yesterday's USA Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something is, that's been uh, substituted, and then you need to go and look for it. So, uh, and the other uh, thing that you can do is uh, allow people, the, uh, the being fun and smart investigators, to notice uh, security cameras that are not necessarily on the prem- the main premises. So, uh, you know, there's been a convenience store robbery where. Uh, uh, someone had uh, his lymph nodes removed by some mysterious force. Uh, and you find out, oh, no, of course, the security camera, like the ones in a lot of these uh, uh, small, independently owned uh, bodegas, are uh, are fakes or they, uh, you know, it's an old VHS one with lousy resolution. But, oh, if you look across the street, the gas station has uh, a security camera that you uh, wouldn't have noticed. Uh, and let's go over there and check out that security camera. And therefore, that can, A, feel like a victory that you've uh, found a, a camera where you didn't expect one. And B, that can also explain why the uh, footage gives you a clue without uh, giving everything away. And of course, anything that can lead you to a, another scene uh, that can be found on the uh, footage is something that uh, people will enjoy having but won't sort short circuit the thing. So it's like, oh, we've got a license plate on a suspicious looking vehicle. Then we run the plate and then we go to the garage where the vehicle was uh, last seen. And then you've got another scene and it's not the final scene. Yeah. Or you notice that there's some other thing that the security cameras picked up that was not the thing that you thought you were looking for. Uh, for example, you have the, the bodega robbery, the, um, the, the uh, gas station security cam picks up the bodega robbery. They see the guy going in. Um, uh, they see the um, uh, sign being turned to closed. They see some shadowy moving around. They see a guy full of lymph come out. But also, they notice that across the way, that the guy, uh, you know, washing the windows on the skyscraper just kept washing the same window throughout the whole operation. And it's like, well, what's that about? Is there a time loop situation? Was that guy the lookout for the lymph-eating monster? Was he the handler? Is the lymph-eating monster controlled remotely? What's going on? And so maybe they can pursue another anomaly that the footage picks up. Because if there's one thing we've learned from Blow Up, it's that... um uh, Photographs of things often contain clues to other things entirely. Right. And uh, when you're performing, uh, you know, the the old enhance, enhance thing, that what might be enhanced is something quite different than you thought. So it's not the uh, clear image of the face of the suspect that you can then run through the database and go arrest him. Uh, but instead, oh, look, uh, there's steganography in the jpeg image on the security camera how did that happen and oh why is this in aramaic and what does this mean in aramaic well it's time to go and talk to the aramaic scholar or have the scene where your resident aramaic expert decodes that and realizes that they you know need to head to the museum where the 
the rest of the inscription is. Or that so, whenever a tulpa is recorded on uh, a security camera. Oh, you keep getting the Tulpa Institute money now. Ken. Yeah. You've, well, you've now that I've seen it, me now again. that I've seen Twin Peaks, we're each eligible for our Tulpa Institute oh, payout. The other thing, obviously, it can say, oh, look, this same drone was at, was at the site of all the killings or this same, you know, mysterious shape. Um, uh, in the sky, or this mysterious shadow that doesn't seem to be cast by anything. Uh, all manner of other things that you can notice that are uh, not the face of the killer. Because the face of the killer, um, for example, it can reveal the face of the killer. You track the person down, and it turns out, no, they're a, a housewife from Paramus, and they have never been to New York City, and they have a completely bulletproof alibi for that fact. And you're like, well, that's weird. First of all, that someone from Paramus would never go to New York City, but it's super weird that her face is on this lymph-eating monster, and now what's going on? Uh, another way to uh, use security cameras and sort of upend them is the clue is you receive security camera footage of something terrible happening, but you don't have context for it. It right. just comes in over the transom, and the first thing you have to do is identify the location that goes with that footage. And mm -hmm. uh, you can do that, of course, all sorts of different ways. You can use your architecture ability to, uh, oh, well, this is, uh, there's an Art Deco building next to a skyscraper in Hanson Hans and so forth. And then uh, that, if you're starting with the security camera and moving from there to, to the scene of the crime, I think would be uh, an interesting uh, twist. And there's all sorts of ways to uh, bring that in midway through, right? That you are, uh, you, you have an intro where your, you know, your job initially is to follow a fugitive and you, uh, catch them and arrest them, and uh, they've had a memory wipe, but they're carrying security cam footage. Or you find, uh, you know, the footage uh, somewhere in the dark web when you're looking for something else. Or you find, uh, you know, on a USB drive in the uh, murder victim's pocket. Or even if it's if it, if it's a file, you know, the, uh, on the dark web or that's sent to you, the file could say uh, JFK murder, and you're like, oh, okay, so there's it's another Zapruder film, and you look at it, and no, it's it's some guy breaking into a bodega and in in new york city and you're like what does this have to do with the jfk murder and it can provide you with a a, a reason to have to believe that there is a link the other thing of course is as we discussed during the reality winner segment is that a modern camera already you know it tells itself on the file where it was and when it was that it shot that image and so that's going to be uh buried into the um the 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 hard a digital code that is a digital security camera. So if it's an old VHS tape, yeah, you're probably SOL unless it's one of those cameras that like prints the date and time, which they all do, but, uh, or they all do in the security biz, but um, uh, it won't print the latitude and longitude, but a digital camera, one with a, you know, taken with anything built in the last, what decade by now is going to have a, a GPS coordinate in it somewhere. And uh, of course, if you're playing uh, a game where uh, weirdness is possible, uh, you could get something labeled, uh, you know, a JFK assassination and you receive it. And it's not shot on super eight. It's a shot on a digital red camera. It's right. HD footage. Yeah. And the uh, shot on an iPhone, shot on an iPhone. And the, uh, the year on the iPhone is 1963. And uh, what does that mean? And what do you do to uh, uh, about that? And what what does that indicate? And so, uh, and and also in uh, you know a, a a game of weirdness, you could have uh, you know a conspiracy that gets together for the entire point of ruining all security camera footage. Of uh, you know they they're planning a, a magical EMP pulse that just uh, wipes out everything. And so the mystery is uh, for. 12 minutes on uh, October 13th, every security camera in the state of Nevada 
just recorded digital garble. Right. So you know that something happened. You know that happened in Nevada. You know that someone was willing to expend a lot of magical resources to make that happen. And now you have to start narrowing it down. And that actually, you don't necessarily need magic. I mean, you need some kind of nonsense, but you could have, yes. you know, a UFO uh, landing that also garbles security footage everywhere because UFOs historically garble up uh, camera footage and, and electronic signaling in general. So your your creature that already has a pre-existing interferes with electronics tag to it. Ghosts do that as well. Right. The superhero with lightning powers. Right. Uh, or even just a series that shot and putatively or said imputatively the real world, except the rules of computers that they follow are TV rules rather than the reality rules. So it's just, <laughs> oh yeah. Malware, a piece of malware knocked out every right. uh, security camera for 12 minutes in Nevada. And uh, I was watching a show last night where uh, people sold a malware program for billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that CSI uh, cyber is still on the air somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the air in our hearts. Um, and I guess once we've talked about the television that plays in our hearts, Robin, have we perhaps moved so far beyond gaming? If as there's to... a television in my heart, I need to go see a doctor. And <laughs> right, get we need to see a doctor. Right and also, I want to see what's on that television because that could explain a lot. Uh, so in that case, perhaps we should uh, go find the remote. Uh, find a heart surgeon, and ne neither of which are going to be in the gaming hut. So out we go uh, through a commercial into another segment. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pilgrim Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The lowering shadows, the spookity noises, and the sense of something, something unknown with many legs crawling up our spine welcomes us once more into the confines of the Horror Hut. And today in the Horror Hut, we are going to, I guess, take sort of a syncretic look, a top-down look, a look at evil spirits and the boogeyman. Good old boogeyman. Uh, Robin... 
What have we got for the lovely people today in their closets and under their beds? Well, there's an interesting uh, filming cycle going on right now, and it's when you have a uh, a group of different horror titles together, it's always fun to uh, look at them, look at how they compare to each other, and then see if there's something in the zeitgeist that is making all of these occur, or just there was one of them that was a hit and they're making a bunch more. Uh, it's almost always B, but that's less fun. And so uh, we had uh, The Babadook, and uh, since then, uh, there, uh, these are all films in which there is a uh, sinister, frightening force that to one extent or another is either attached to a family as uh, the figure of childhood menace, like the Babadook is, or a spirit that is attached to the family, as in the case of uh, Mama. Uh, recently, there was a film that is good until it's not, called Lights Out, uh, which has <laughs> Maria Bello in it. And uh, arguably, the uh, the stalker figure from It Follows is also also sort of follows the rules of a bogeyman, although he's a sort of a contagious uh, bogeyman that has a, a, also a sense of the uh, people who uh, have have sex in the uh, slasher movie getting punished sort of thing as well. So, Ken, uh, when you envision, first of all, let's go back to the mythic roots. When you envision a bogeyman, uh, what comes to mind? What what uh, visual image is, is there floating before you? I think that my my visual bogeyman image, uh, depending on uh, whether or not I'm sort of my my daylight Apollonian bogeyman is probably the 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 creature that sits on the chest of the dreamer in the Fuseli etching that everyone's familiar with, called the Nightmare. Sometimes, and it's it's supposed to be a night hag, but it's it's definitely a boy figure that it's, it's sort of sitting there and um, uh, crushing the life out of that. Uh, the sleeper. And I think of that as my sort of, uh, prototypical, uh, bogeyman or, or boogeyman. And then of course the, the Dionysian, uh, nighttime, uh, left brain response or whichever brain it is. That's the crazy intuitive one is of course, Michael Myers from the beloved, uh, children's film, Halloween by John Carpenter. And, um, he of course is called the boogeyman because again, as you say, he is an implacable stalker figure that seems to be fixated on uh, specific members of the cast and, uh, and, and to haunt them or, uh, as does the titular boogeyman. And, uh, that made a very strong impression on me when I saw it at age, whatever it was, 14 and remains one of the great invocations of an ancient myth in a modern spectacle today. So that's, those are my boogies, man is the, right. the little uh, night uh, thing that that's there watching you sleep or creepy uh, Michael Myers from Halloween. Right. And mentioning the facility, of course, brings in sleep paralysis, yeah. uh, which is the, uh, what happens uh, when your mind wakes up and your body doesn't basically. And uh, some people uh, suffer from this on a uh, chronic basis. I've had it a couple of times. Uh, it's very unpleasant. Um, <laughs> And uh, the people who suffer from it chronically often have a personified entity that comes in and visits them. And this is where things start to cross over because sometimes it manifests as a, uh, it appears like a demon. Sometimes it looks like uh, a, a gray alien. Uh, so we're getting a little elliptony in the mix there. And so this is the idea of the menace that is attached to you that is keeps coming back and visiting you again and again. And so uh, in one sense, a lot of these uh, modern boogeyman stories or evil spirit stories are uh, manifesting the very real experience of uh, sleep paralysis. And you can know intellectually after you've woken up that these entities are a projection of your uh, mind, which is still dreaming, even though you are quasi awake, uh, but still also deeply feel that these things are real and menacing. And the other part of the boogeyman equation uh, folklorically is that almost every culture has 
something waiting out in the woods that you should avoid, especially at night. Uh, now, going out into the woods at night in a uh, pre-industrial society, and even kind of now, is uh, good advice. Um, and especially uh, children are often warned about uh, not going out past certain boundaries or the boogeyman will get them, which is a, a great parenting. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, it's effective, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I think I mentioned on the show previously, uh, I had a, a personal boogeyman introduced to me when I was a kid because the uh, back back in the 70s, daycare was a different time. <laughs> and there was a 70s daycare camp and there was this uh, guy who, who ran the camp out of a church and uh, he turned out to be shady in a bunch of ways. And uh, one of those ways is he didn't want uh, kids going off of the church property into the bush back behind the church. So he told them that back where there was this big rock with a stake sticking out of it was where they buried the vampire John Isidore. Uh, and so uh, better not go back there or uh, John Isidore might come out and kill you. So just stay on the ground of the property, kids. Well, you'll be safe. Uh, well, yeah. it turns out that after a lot of nightmares, a lot of parents got back to this uh, guy running the day camp and he had to tell a whole story about how the... John Isidore had been captured and was now deep in a vault, kept safely in Montreal, uh, where I guess he was weighed down by the poutine, or he would stop for bagels, or anyway, he wasn't going to come and bother us in Ontario. He just has to keep Ontario. translating everything in French. Exactly, and, yes. And, and that's, it's like the vampires that have to count seeds. Right. And so I, uh, I put John Isidore in Last Chance Brains, the over-the-edge adventure, and he's a... He's an on-the-edge card and so forth. But that's, uh, you know, that was very real to me as a kid. The thought that, you know, John Isidore could, could come and get me. And so that uh, sense of, I think that's sort of the emotional hook of the whole boogeyman idea is the is the thought that out of a sense of protectiveness, uh, your parents instilling in you a sense of, of horror and, and, and terror that is much worse on you than, uh, you know, anything you could have done back in the bush behind the rock. So, Ken, uh, is there, do you think that there's sort of a current mythic resonance that accounts for uh, this uh, burst of evil spirit and boogeyman films, or is it just that Babadook did well? I mean, first of all, I want to know, did your counselor get that your your daycare guy get that from the character in do androids dream of electric sheep or I, I is there a separate i was seven well, <laughs> or I'm, eight I'm or nine or something I'm still i'm just i'm just amazed because you know going back to the original source is one of the things that i like to do uh the original source for boogeyman is the proto-germanic word boogie which means thick or swollen and uh, the boogie is uh, also used to describe goblins and snot balls and uh, bullies and scarecrows. And so all of those things together make the boogeyman for, for terms of the current cultural mark market. I think, first of all, boogeyman's, you know, like you say, the Babadook did really well. It follows did really well. Um, Halloween did really well. So people have always, you know, sort of noticed that that's a good thing. Right. Personalizing I think people the don't horror, mentally file. That is a boogeyman story, right, although yeah. the, all the markers are there. The, the, right. I think the slasher yeah. uh, fits that for uh, for the layman's uh, use. He's just less spiritual than the Babadook is, because yeah. he's an actual people, even if he's sort of magically able to run around and teleport through doors and stuff. He gets more supernatural as he goes along. But. Right. And so the, and, and so first of all, personalizing the horror makes better screenplay sense because it's better if you care about a character and then they're being stalked by the monster. They're super cheap to film. And I think, yeah, 
there is a maybe, I mean, if, if you're sort of a, um, uh, one of those people who draws, uh, broad geopolitical trends down and says that's where horror movies are coming from, I think obviously people are more aware of surveillance in a way that they haven't been, uh, pre Edward Snowden and pre 9-11. I think that people, uh, certainly in Hollywood perhaps have reason to wonder if there is a shadowy and horrible figure tracking their life. Uh, as we are beginning to discover, there are an awful lot of shadowy, horrible figures in Hollywood who have a great deal of power over people's lives. And so it may be just that screenwriters are especially susceptible to this sort of cultural miasma. And then finally, the, as you say, it's, it's a, it's a ancient and archetypal horror that, you know, there is a specific a uh, creature that wants to do you harm way back in the day. It was, if you would not uh, honor your ancestor correctly, uh, he would come back and he would, you know, mess you up. Uh, and so that's why you had to, you know, remember their name on saints days, or even before that you had to bring them, uh, of, you know, fire and, and beans on uh, the Lemuria day, uh, lots of different ways to keep the ancestors from coming after you. And that, you know, that, that goes back, at the very beginnings of virtually every uh, organized culture we know anything about has some sort of ancestor placation ritual. And so that boogeyman belief that there is someone who's specifically tied to you and will mess you up if you do wrong is, you know, it, it, it like you say, maybe it has a common origin in neurology because um, a quarter of people roughly suffer from uh, sleep paralysis with the, with the concomitant uh, hallucination. And so you've got a, a a lot of overlapping things that drive this. And if it's popping up now specifically, I, I think that it's sort of a perfect storm of situations where you've got the geopolitical, uh, the financial, the means of production. As I always say, the only thing Marxism explains is the arts, but it does it very well. And um, uh, down into just questions of. You know, did the Baba Duke do well? Great. Let's make another million Baba's Duke and a paranormal activity made like $300 million. And that's again, another boogeyman story. Right. And, uh, that also underlines the sort of, uh, its popularity as just a storytelling device because, uh, having a spirit that haunts you rather than the spirit that haunts the house, uh, means that the question of why don't they just leave the house is then dispensed with. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, quite often, it still centers around a house, but even not having that question uh, is the one that, uh, you know, solves a whole bunch of uh, otherwise nonsense necessitating uh, exposition. Um, and so in terms of translating this into a gaming uh, scenario, the challenge is, do you want to center it on one of the player characters and have one of the player characters targeted uh, and possibly feel that they are threatened uh, too much or that uh, or just having the problem of if you break in the middle and then that character can't make the next session, what do you do? And so uh, do we want to externalize our, our uh, boogeyman or evil spirit to something that is tracking the game master characters and the player characters have to sort that out? Or is there a good way to work around those basic uh, problems of a boogeyman story. Um, I think that a lot of it is going to be, is this a one-off or is this a serial campaign? If you're expecting to pick these characters up again and move them on, then in a game like, like say GURPS, they will have bought their boogeyman at, at uh, character generation. You know, they would have say haunted by a boogeyman. And that's the thing that I paid points for. And so, yeah, the boogeyman is going to show up and mess with them throughout the campaign. If it's a campaign type story, Unless you are 
provided a really great inciting incident for why a boogeyman is suddenly haunting them. Maybe they forgot to honor Uncle Einar and he comes back and he's a mean vampire, not a fun vampire, or he comes back and he's a boogeyman or some other thing. You know, they sleep with the wrong um, uh, person and they're carrying the it follows virus. Um, you know, something happens to incite it. Then it becomes an episode in their picaresque story. And yeah, you just have to, uh, you know, assume that all of the characters are getting banged by something. And if it's, you know, uh, Steve gets the, it follows virus this time, then, uh, Sarah is going to, um, turn out to be descended from, uh, Dr. Frankenstein, the next one. And, uh, Alice is going to wind up, um, uh, with her grandmother turns out that she was a witch and everyone's going to get boned by a, by a, by a, by a story event. So it's just, that's how you do it in a serial game. I think doing it for an GMC is, is a, is, it's a little distancing and you can certainly make it scary, but if the boogeyman is like following, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and none of the player characters are Jamie Lee Curtis, they're all a bunch of Donald Pleasances. It's like, well, we feel bad about it and we'll certainly show up at the very tail end and shoot the thing. But did we really have the, the terror of, of hunting this boogeyman or isn't really the terror being hunted by the boogeyman? Right. So I would, I would tend to not really even go with the GMC unless it's a GMC, uh, that they're so familiar with and they are so fond of and depend on so much that them being hunted by a boogeyman is basically the same thing as hunting the player characters. It can be sort of a consolation that you know that boogeyman is going to kill you last because he's anchored to you. He doesn't want to kill you. He wants to kill everybody around you. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of a, a, a Chucky thing. Um, and uh, your then mission is to get rid of him before he hurts other people, including the other player characters. Yeah, the, the, the one shot, of course, is the simplest thing where you pick the player who you know is going to be like it's their house that you play at. And they're the boogeyman or character. They're the boogie haunted character. And the other characters are, as you say, the people who are going to get killed on the way to our hero or who are uh, maybe one of them is the Donald Pleasance character who's who's heard of the boogeyman and is coming to haunt, hunt them. And one of them is the policeman and he's got other things going on in the town. And, you know, you, you sort of just build it out around that main character to present a, a proper fear itself sort of uh, you know, stalker experience. It also suggests a fun uh, player character for either a uh, supernatural weirdness game or a uh, superhero game that has magic uh, in it, uh, which is that uh, your superpower is that you have a boogeyman that you have somewhat tamed. And so, uh, you know, you've somehow integrated or you've got a crystal or you've got a thing that you can put it back in or you can give it a certain number of commands. You've had every a day. Freudian breakthrough like at the end of Babadook. It just lives in your basement. <laughs> and so uh, you can then, uh, you know, that's your superpower is you, you can uh, send this boogeyman out to go and do things. But of course, if it. Uh, if you break the rules, right, that's that's a number one staple of horror, right? Is that yep. you've tamed the thing, but you can't, uh, you know, feed it Oreos after midnight or, uh, you know, you can't let it uh, strike anyone that you have a personal animus toward or something that's... Right. Uh, you can avoid, but it's somewhat difficult. That would be sort of a, a or like, yeah. And you can, you can go as folkloric and weird with it as you want. Like if it's, Oh, the boogeyman, you can send him out, but if it spills virgin blood, then that sort of resets it. And then it comes after you again. And you're like, I don't know if the bad guy that we're sending it after to is, has had sex or if he's got a young child at home who might be, you know, eaten on the way. Oh my God, I've got to do a ton of research and look into this. And I really have to be sure before I unleash the boogeyman, something like that, that where it's still an implacable rule, but not breaking it is super hard. Right. Or you could just be a boogeyman. You could be, you know, you're, you've come back because uh, your descendants are not properly respecting you and you have to uh, wreak terrible vengeance on them. But in today's modern world, 
it turns out that you can take your time about that. Like the, the rules of magic has sort of uh, loosened up a bit, as, as so many other things have. And so, you know, as long as you're eventually, uh, you know, going to kill Uncle Bob, uh, well, then you can sort of hang around the world and, and maybe do some good. Maybe you feel guilty, but, you know, you didn't choose to be an ancestral spirit of vengeance. It's Bob's fault for uh, not taking care of your grave. And so while you're here, you know, with regret, eventually you're going to have to bump off Bob. But each week you get to, you know, put that off a little by taking care of an actual real uh, bad guy or villain. And that can be your uh, your hook in a, a weirdo uh, superhero show. Yeah, if you're if it's like sort of... Um what were they? The monster squad. There was a team of superheroes. That's not it, but there was a team of superheroes that was like a a vampire and a mummy and all kinds of things. And they would go out and fight evil for the government. Or just like your version of justice league dark. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say just in sort of a, a a footnote for the kids is if you are, if you think, well, I can't come up with a cool folklore rule for my boogeyman, the Wikipedia page boogeyman is it is lush. <laughs> Every culture, Every its culture. Own unique uh, thing. We didn't yeah. read off the Wikipedia page because guess what? It's Wikipedia. Right. And that's not how we play it here on the, on the podcast. But I do want to tell you that, oh my goodness, are there a lot of boogeymans out there? So feel free to, to trawl its, its deep and, um, uh, gravid depths. Right. Uh, well, uh, there's one thing that haunts this podcast uh, about four times every episode, and that's the specter of a commercial. But it's a beautiful, kind, and loving commercial, which will unspool now. Years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come, but the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure gamebook in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Stop evil spirits from anchoring to this podcast by joining Patreon backers exactly like Ryan Mannix, Andrew Collins, Darren Dumay, Paul S. Enns, and Sean Krause. Hey everybody, it's once more time for Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. And this time, Ken and Robin are talking to Wade Rocket. Uh, Wait, you wear a number of hats, including a, a game design hat. You want to let's start off by talking about your uh, game writing. I would love to start off by talking about my game writing, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. So, I had started in the RPG industry in PR and marketing, but uh, I am a writer 
first and foremost, and so I sort of took every opportunity. Way to spoil what the next hat is. Yeah, right? no, nicely done, Wade. Uh, good PR. Yeah, start off with a with a hat spoiling. Yeah. So angry. Game design. Yes, uh, I have uh, I have written a number of things, uh, including the Emmy Award winning Thirteenth uh, Age Game Masters screen and resource book. I've written a couple of. Uh, 13th Age Adventures, Wreck of Volan's Glory, and Temple of the Sun Cabal. I've done some work uh, with Pathfinder for Kobold Press. I did a Ravenfolk book for them uh, and have edited Deep Magic for 13th Age and the Midgard Bestiary uh, with uh, Ash Law. So that's a, a lot of F20 stuff. What is it about F20 that hits your sweet spot? You know, it, it, it's funny because uh, F20 actually hadn't hit my sweet spot since junior high. Uh, and first edition D&D, and then I moved on to other games like Call of Cthulhu and Champions. But what brought me back into the hobby was fourth edition D&D, and I was invited to join a friend's campaign. And so um, I I think at that time what got me interested in game design, which I'd never really considered before, was actually reading uh, OSR uh, blogs at the time because I was sort of catching up on D&D. And I saw that there were a lot of people who were tinkering with F20 systems in ways that I'd never really thought of before. And so when I had an opportunity to work on 13th Age, I thought, well, heck, I can do this because anyone could do this. Um, and 13th Age is especially well suited to customizing and customizing and modifying. Yeah, it's very, um, very much the Duplo blocks of F20. Yeah, right. I mean, you, you, all the pieces fit together, and you can grab them all easily. There's not a lot of tiny bits to get lost and. Uh, go up into your instep when you're not looking. Mm-hmm. The, Pathfinder, the Pathfinder work was just because uh, Wolfgang Bauer needed somebody to write uh, a Pathfinder book uh, about the Ravenfolk, and I love the, the Ravenfolk, and so I, I energetically waved my hand. Uh, I forgot, I've also done some work on, uh, on D&D for Wizards of the Coast, a bit of uh, editing for Dragon and Dungeon magazine. So is there a particular uh, creature or crunchy bit that you've created that you are particularly proud of? Oh, the other night uh, I ran, uh, I started running Temple of the Sun Cabal for my home group. And uh, they fought something called a Solar Mummy, which uh, is an undead druid uh, sun worshiper who has uh, emerged from his long slumber and is rampaging on the docks of a fishing village. And I was very. So he's just waiting for a really good place to take the bandages off, and exactly, exactly. And do they convert to a beach towel? Is that the that the deal? I uh, sure. I'm going to say yes. Uh, they could be a the, beach the, towel. The thing about him being a solar mummy is he's uh, brought back by his commitment to renewable energy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's symbolic. Yes. But the thing that it, I, I, I'm afraid I couldn't stop laughing uh, during the battle, which really uh, irritated my players, but I was just so happy with how that battle played out because the solar mummy uh, is one where I just think I came up with some interesting mechanics, which made for a, the battle presented the players with a lot of choices to make because the solar mummy is sort of off in the distance picking them off but if you were to close with him in melee then he has all sorts of other nasty things that he could unleash and in the meantime he is summoning fire elementals to both attack the players and to set the fishing village on fire because he really doesn't want to fight so much he's lived this long he doesn't just want to be taken out by a a bunch of hooligans so he is more than happy to make his escape while setting the landscape on fire so he's heard of F20 characters. Right. He has heard of F20 characters, and he wants no truck with them. Right. And it makes sense for mummies to be uh, really passionately devoted to renewable energy, because in the Victorian era, 
they were used as a fuel source. Right. Yeah. They, if they anyone were. has a has a grudge, and that's the irony, of course, of him setting the village on fire, is that he's now probably actually widened his carbon footprint substantially. Uh, and so, if you could bring that to his attention, maybe then he would realize what he's done. Right. Well, you know, all all great antagonists want to do something good in a bad way. Right. Um, now, uh, speaking of, of doing uh, a good, uh, you are also, a, as you said before, a, a PR and marketing uh, person for uh, role-playing games. I have never heard PR and marketing framed as doing good. Yeah, I, this well, warms my heart. Well, if you, if you, you really <laughs> That we carefully left sub until you made us bring it back up again. Uh, so when when Ken and I started out, the idea of there being PR and marketing for uh, tabletop role playing, Kel absurd for this is a uh, I've got a show, I've got a trunk, you've got a barn. Let's put on a performance uh, sort of situation. Uh, but now. Uh, tabletop is getting big. Uh, we are uh, recording this interview before Gen Con, the first Gen Con to sell out. Apparently, uh, role-playing game sales have doubled since 2013. So this means that uh, marketing might be more of a thing, and we might actually get like actual marketing studies someday, maybe. So how do you fit into this? What is the state of marketing for tabletop role-playing today? I think you're absolutely on the nose there. Uh, the industry has uh, matured to a tremendous degree, and it's grown to a tremendous degree. And um, when a hobby is, uh, or any industry, is very, very small, yeah, the the need for marketing and PR is minimal because you just go to the place where people go to buy role-playing games and put your role-playing game there. And people who like role-playing games will say, hey, that's a thing I like. I'll yeah. check that out. But the product is the ad. The product is the ad. And I and and, and also yeah. it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because no company has any money to do any more marketing. Mm. So why not just stick to, you know, putting it all up on the screen as they say. Yeah. And uh, and most companies still don't have much right, money yeah. for marketing. So it's got to be very scrappy, but uh I am seeing much more marketing and PR savvy from people who run uh publishing companies. Um, you think that's a generational it, shift? Just that they grew up knowing the internet and knowing the sort of guerrilla marketing stuff that was radical and new in the 80s and 90s and is now sort of old hat received wisdom? Or do you think it's just that people who start a company now are are, are going to be better at that because otherwise they didn't start a company in the first place? What what causes that shift? I think they absolutely see the value of it now. and I, And I do believe that sort of the digital slash social era has a lot to do with it. Because when you have so many people out there who would like to make their voices heard uh, and a lot of voices that just sort of anyone who wants to attract an audience, whether it's just people that they like and who would, they would like to pay attention to them or people who are trying to market a product, they have to be savvy about, you know, I mean, let's let's take Twitter please. So at the beginning, of course, there were a small number of people on Twitter and you followed the people on Twitter because they were there. Now that there are lots of people on Twitter, you see more ordinary folks who are being very choosy about what they put out there. They are drafting tweets and and revising them and thinking, what is the best way to say this thing that I want to say? Because, well, anyone could just say this dumb thing that I want, but you know, if I want to stand out at all, then I have to be conscious of that. And so... I think there is an extent to which this is absor- This is a, a function of the time that we live in, where just everyone is not only media savvy, but also much more marketing savvy than they were in 
past generations. And if not everyone, then it's not 1% that are media savvy or marketing savvy. It's now 10% or 20%. Yeah, a bigger yeah, sure. number. I mean, certainly if you go on social media, you are amazed at how many people seem to still be smashing the keyboard with their face <laughs> just to tell the world that they think that Guardians of the Galaxy is rad, and that's all. Right. Yeah. But but they're aware of that dynamic um, of, of how you become popular, because right. thanks to uh, uh, things going viral. Mm-hmm. They're aware that there are things that you could do to, to amplify things. And what are pictures of your attractive cat Virgil, for example? Exactly. I mean, that would be. I think everyone should put up pictures of your attractive cat Virgil. I agree. I agree. So, so yes. So that's part of it. And and so some people of those who become aware of the value of marketing and get a sense of what it takes to become heard actually take the time to learn a bit about it. And I think that there are also more people who are open. More people are becoming involved in the industry, like myself who perhaps uh, have some experience in this field. And that's and that it would be like, like the next question, because uh, yeah, Robin and I can probably both agree that the worst kind of client is someone who thinks that they're a game designer. <laughs> so if you're doing PR for someone who thinks that they're PR savvy, does that help? Does that hurt? Did they, or did they, or their, is their instinct sound and their ideas bad? Where's the, where do you, if everyone's PR savvy, what is the Wade Rocket bonus? What's your plus four that you bring to this? Uh, the plus four that I bring to this, uh, kind of going back to how I got into the industry, uh, was that, uh, again, Wolfgang Bauer was had launched Open Design and uh, had launched Cobalt Quarterly Magazine. And he knew that marketing was important and knew that he had neither the time nor skill to dedicate to it. And so he said, hey, do you want to have fun and make a little bit of extra money and help me out with marketing? The value that I brought to that is that I have been in PR and marketing professionally for over 10 years now, and I have worked with a wide variety of clients. I have worked with some very good people in the industry. So I know a bit, like a full-time professional seasoned game designer, I know a bit more than the average bear. Right. So if you want somebody who has, you know, really knows their stuff, then... Yeah, you you might want to bring a Wade Rocket on board um, at the very least for as a uh, a sounding board or a reality check. Um, I am one of those just sad specimens who sort of like you know what I really want to do is direct. Um, as a, I, I am a writer who got a chance to write full time by getting into PR, and so it's every chance I get, like I said, it's sort of like hey hey, do you need a you need a monster design because I'd, I'd really love to do that. It's like we'd actually like you to blast some reporters with an email about our new book. It's like okay, cool. I could, I could do that. Sure, sure. But may, maybe next time, I'll do a monster. So, uh, <laughs> if, if if our uh, imaginary listener is planning to uh, launch a role playing game product, even your real listeners, even the real listeners, yeah. uh, and uh, they can't quite yet afford a Wade Rocket, mm. uh, what are the what are the top do's and don'ts? Oh gosh, top do's and don'ts. Besides, offer Wade a chance to design a monster for him. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, <laughs> that and, is the and, way to and, win my heart. He intellectually yeah. draw him in so right. in order to employ him at less than his own oh, right. right. Oh, I, did, I mean, no. I didn't want to, you know, sort of bring the subtext up, but apparently we're doing that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, so if you are producing a role playing game, uh, which you intend to sell and selling copies of that is meaningful to you. It's not just purely a labor of love. Then likely you do have a uh, small marketing budget and uh, scant resources. And in that case, absolutely, the number one thing to do, in my opinion, 
is to cultivate your community because you are utterly reliant on uh, word of mouth. And so the way to do that is to talk to people, talk to people honestly, but also uh, with uh, respect and an appreciation of who they are and what they do. Celebrate your fans. Uh, so real life case study with 13th Age, um, when uh, Fire Opal Media, you know, Rob Hainso and uh, and Jonathan Tweet and others uh, were working on 13th Age and they asked me to come on board and help with PR for that. It's a, an odd, quirky game. Uh, and the marketing budget was minimal. And so uh, what I did early on in the playtest was uh, see what people were saying about the game online, see who the passionate fans were who were taking it seriously, um, or even the skeptical people who were taking the game seriously, and uh, and talk to them online uh, and kind of keep them abreast of what was happening with the game, ask them questions, let them know that what they were saying was actually meaningful to us, and in some cases was influencing the direction of the game. And whenever somebody did something cool with 13th Age online, I would use our official social channels to share it. If somebody said, wrote a good blog post or designed a good monster or a class, then I would just happily put it out there to share with the community. And so, and so that community was nurtured and grew and became really solid. So that later on, when we made uh, some really bad missteps with the Kickstarter that we ran for the uh, supplement, that we had earned some credibility to where that fan base was willing to stick with us, um, even though we had we had gone a little tone deaf in some parts when we launched the Kickstarter, and gave us a chance to correct course in a way that uh, that made them much happier. So, would you be willing to dig a little deeper into that as just sort of a case study of how to take? something that's going sideways and get it back on track? Sure. Something you uh, should not do is get defensive. Don't circle the wagons. Um, listen to what people are saying. And, you know, and, and there's always going to be people out there who will say something negative about whatever you're doing. So you have to be able to sift through just the standard expected criticism uh, and the criticism that may be legitimate, but there's still nothing you can do about it. Like, shipping costs too much is one you always right, hear. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, shipping does cost too much. But acknowledge that uh, you've screwed up and make a good faith effort to do better, to change what is wrong, and be transparent about that. Keep people informed and in the loop um, whenever possible. And in a yeah. way, your PR person is, if you can have a PR person, one of your important jobs as, uh, as such is to be detached enough to be the person who responds and doesn't get defensive because the, the natural human reaction when anyone comes at you in any way is to zap back. And of mm -hmm. course, that's totally the wrong thing to do. So it's useful if you can have someone else step in and uh, who's less close to the situation and therefore less likely to be emotionally involved in emotional self-defense. I, I often joke that uh, one of my important roles is to be the sacrificial goat, uh, but I that is absolutely true, that uh, it's important for me to be on the front lines and be able to weather that criticism so that the designers can be off buckling down and, and working to make things right while I field the, the various conversations and, uh, and, and updates. Another, another important function of a PR person, I think, is also to be an advocate for the community. I am. I often go back to uh, designers and say, "Hey, 
I'm hearing this, and I think that it is worth addressing. And I, I try not to bother them too much because, again, they're they're busy making games. But if there's something we're doing that is rubbing people the wrong way, and it's something that we can uh, do better at, then I like to bring that to them. Uh, and of course, I also justify the ways of God to men, and then come back and say, "Oh yeah, here's why this is the way it is." But uh, but you know, thank you for letting us know, and we're going to try to, you know, tweak that a little bit. On the topic of things that when Robin and I were starting out, no one on earth would have believed. Uh, now we are in a world where hundreds of thousands of people will watch other people play role-playing games on YouTube. Yes. And on your Twitches and such, which is, it's impossible to get your head around if you're uh, of the generation of Robin and myself. As a PR guy, you have to say, this is great, but as a PR guy, how is there a way to make that happen for your company, or is it just a matter of hoping that telegenic people like your game well enough to do it on YouTube for a year? Yes, uh, I absolutely hope that telegenic people like our game enough to do it on YouTube or Twitch for a year, and I am happy to provide resources and support and promotion for people who want to do that. Uh, again, going back to support your community and, mm -hmm. and, and advocate for them. So, uh, so yeah, I, I will share out actual plays and things like that. It, it is difficult for us to do that because we are of a certain age and this is still strange and we're figuring it out and maybe it's not something that comes natural to us. So um, it is good if people who are good at that and who have an audience that they resonate with are doing that for you. Um, but I personally would like us to do more things like that. Um, and Robin, of course, has uh, has run games um, on uh, Google Hangouts, I believe. And uh, and I think those were pretty successful, if memory serves. Um, um, yeah, and the, and the thing I did was just sort of a, a sort of a proof of tone thing too. So if you go back and look at the, there's a Yellow King thing you can watch, mm -hmm. but it's like very very far away now from what the actual mechanics of the game. Are, and it just gives you the feel of the, the setting and the kinds of things that you're doing, which are 95% of what you're selling to people when you're telling about a new role-playing game. All right, so very quickly, uh, as a final question, let's predict the future. Uh, the, uh, we're at the part now where we can kind of start to afford to have PR people for some of our games, mm -hmm. but I think, uh, I don't know, if Ken, if you share this concern, but certainly that uh, there's, a down, there's a downside to if our profession suddenly has money in it. Yeah. <laughs> which is that money guys will start to circle. Right. And so uh, we were joking earlier about PR, but of course the fear from a creative person's point of view is that the uh, dynamic will get turned on its head and you'll have a situation where the marketing people go off and do a study and then they come to the designers and say, well, what the, what the players really want is D12s. And mm -hmm. D12s in a a modern setting, but with anthropomorphic ducks. That's what we need. So uh, do you think that's going to happen? And if so, do you think it's going to happen anytime soon? Oh, it's already happening to a very limited extent because there are very few companies that, that have money, um, that kind of money. But it is, in, in a way, it's the difference between a good PR person and a bad PR person. This profession is... A very complex and challenging one because I mentioned being an advocate for the fans. So a PR person is an advocate for the audience. They're an advocate for the reporters, 
but they also serve the client's business needs, right? Which is perhaps to sell games. Yes. So, <laughs> More perhaps than others, depending on the client. Right. Uh, and everybody has their own agenda, and everybody might be wrong. You know, the client may say, oh, we want to do this. And it's like, well, your audience actually does not want that. And so is your goal to give the audience what they want, or is your goal to do this thing that you think is right and good, regardless of whether people actually want it? Because either way, I'm cool, and, uh, and I'll do a, my job for you regardless. So, yeah, um, a, a good PR person will bring that, or marketing person will bring that feedback back with the recognition that the client will do with that information what they will. You know, what you can do is just leverage the resources you have to give them information about what you know and and what your instincts are about what will work and what won't. And then you work with them to uh, deliver a solution that ideally will make er uh, everybody happy or at least as few people unhappy as possible. So finally, Wade, uh, as a yes. PR person, can you tell our listeners that this segment has come to a close and there's an exciting commercial message for them coming up? Uh, this segment is absolutely coming to a close, and I am very excited for the commercial message, which is which we're all about to hear. Frankly, I can't wait. Thanks, Wade. Thanks. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our humble correspondent back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And uh, Patreon backer Derek Upham has a question for us. And folks, if you're trying to remember the difficult example of what begging the question really means, as opposed to raising a question, here's an example because he says, Ken, why did you cause the eggnog riot? So you'll notice there, uh, grammarians, that Derek has begged the question by assuming that uh, Ken caused the eggnog riot, which in this case, um, sometimes when people assume that Ken has committed some sort of a historical murder or something, obviously Ken's not going to do that sort of thing. But an eggnog riot, I have to say, does sound... It fits my M.O. <laughs> somewhat up your alley. Yes. So uh, this is also known uh, less entertainingly, and therefore not as often, as yes. the Grog Mutiny. This is like 
Oh, yeah, there's been a thousand grog mutinies, but how yeah. many eggnog riots are there? Not this enough. happened at West Point, and if you want to guess when it happened, it happened between the 24th and the 25th, when things got out of hand at West Point in 1826. And so, uh, in our uh, history, which I guess is the history you caused, a big brouhaha broke out when there was a, uh, the ratio of whiskey to nog uh, slipped a bit, and uh, <laughs> the students uh, who were uh, obviously not able to go home and visit the folks. Lesson here, let the kids go home for yeah <laughs> for, for Christmas. If you're not going to serve alcohol at West Point, which I have to say, that's a sound argument, certainly in 1826. But Turns out eggnog riots break out Don't make them alcohol. stay there over Christmas. Um, because uh, we are training men to solve problems and move with alacrity towards objectives and think tactically and, yes. so, and, uh, and lay in ample logistics, which indeed they did. The plan, the plan was to buy a half gallon of whiskey for the eggnog party. Now, as a result of all of the cadets saying... That doesn't even seem like a plan that ought to go awry. No. It, 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 you're going to take a boat across the river. Uh, you're going to buy some whiskey. You're going to sneak it back across the river. How hard can it be? Well, it turns out that other uh, cadets, having heard the plan, said, Oh, I can do that. Super easy. So another bunch of cadets went and got two gallons of whiskey. And a different cadet got a gallon of rum from Benny's Tavern and... Now you're beginning to see why the guy who was sent to get eggs and milk was being such a baby about everything. <laughs> he's like, this is not going to be, um, yes. this is going to be a very strong, oh, strong be whipping eggs for three weeks. Yes. Your people are mad. Um, so they, uh, they, they, they set up the eggnog station. They uh, enjoy a good, a good time at uh, the North barracks. And by the end of the proceedings, there has been, a, they call it a riot, but the actual sort of series is more a, a whole bunch of drunken brawls that spring out when, <laughs> when the poor guy in charge of uh, maintaining discipline, a fellow named Ethan Allen Hitchcock, a captain in the army, uh, goes around from room to room in the barracks and finds a bunch of guys messed up on eggnog saying, I'll fight you, Ethan Allen Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they they have a, a a period where you know they're putting people in you know clapping him in 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 uh, chains and taking him down to the brig and then they're like oh screw it let's let him sleep it off and then they're just saying all right just seal up the north barracks and don't let them out and then finally they have mandatory chapel and so everyone that gets roused out of bed at you know six in the morning or whatever uh to the sound of drums and trumpets and everyone's very mad about that and they have to go out and do parade formation and sit through chapel still drunk or hungover uh which you would think is punishment enough right but nope then because it is in fact uh, against orders to sneak whiskey onto uh west point campus and super against orders to get drunk on that whiskey and super super against orders to say i'll fight you ethan allen hatchcock they had a series of court martials and 21 men one enlisted soldier who was the guy who was on duty allegedly preventing people from smuggling whiskey across the river uh private dugan <laughs> he got tried yeah. Or poor Private Dugan, who... Now, I'm envisioning a big John Ford movie here. Yeah. Uh, with the uh, characteristic scene where all the drunks pummel each other and then they bonded at the end. So, 
uh, Dugan, I guess, is like played by poor Ward Bond or something, yes. right? Well, uh, you boys better not bring any more whiskey. Why did you more whiskey? What you, you go? Well, that, that's your Walter Brennan. That's, that's my Walter Brennan. The, the right, big yeah. beefy, the big Ward oh, Bond right, yeah, the, the sort of yeah. um, uh, the. Well, I, I, I suppose it's all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, but anyway, um, the uh, proletarian yes. guy who you know they have to. All these guys from the officer class uh, have a rouse to this poor uh, parole get has to get. Uh, uh, railroaded along with them. But. Well, many of them also uh, got uh, not so much railroaded as court-martialed for disobeying orders. Right. <laughs> and some of them, were, uh, many of them were uh, expelled, and some of them were the the sentence was overturned by higher authority, and some of them they just uh, gave them clemency for whatever reason. Uh, even though they weren't, uh, they, they didn't uh, yell at Ethan Allen Hitchcock quite as loud, or right. they had some random uh, part in it. Uh, most notably, Jefferson Davis. Yes, who was not charged um he was involved but never charged and uh if that is a, a sort of uh lead them up in the way that they will go jefferson davis being involved in a insurrection that he uh, then escapes most of the consequences of is pretty much on the nose <laughs> <laughs> now uh if, if i was uh doing neg- eggnog related time travel i would want to somehow bring in the psychotropic properties of nutmeg uh, but ken you must have had some other a grand historical uh, scheme uh, up your sleeve in order to go back and uh, was it the two gallon cask of whiskey that, that you supplied? Is that yours? I may or may not have supplied the two gallon cask. I may or may not have supplied the gallon of rum. That's neither here nor there. Uh, yes. We, let's not get bogged down in mere details. In who did or did not bribe Private Dugan. Right. And and, and how good is the whiskey and or rum in 1826 uh, near West Point? The rum is all right. The whiskey could quite frankly stand to age a little longer. Right. <laughs> this is not like scotch. This is not, you know, your, your 12 year, your Lafrague. This is whiskey in the sense of it's probably bourbon and it's probably not even three years in the cask bourbon. This is probably Ohio Valley corn whiskey that they just it just fell off a keelboat and that's why it's being sold to that's impecunious why you need cadets. the milk and eggs and sugar. Exactly. So I do not recommend uh, the whiskey in 1826 West Point. Certainly not without, as you say, milk, eggs, sugar, maybe a little sherry, yeah, maybe uh, possibly a punch or two to the head, some other things, perhaps, that. perhaps a, a, a rifle butt here and there. Um, no, the goal is to have uh, involved Robert E. Lee and who was a cadet at West Point at the same time uh, in the riot so as to get Robert E. Lee expelled, so as to have him not have military experience, so as to shorten the Civil War. The other goal is to involve Benjamin G. Humphreys, the Mississippi uh, general who was so powerfully effective at winning the Civil War at Gettysburg um, for the South. Get him out of the picture. Now, uh, as with many jobs that involve a barrel, uh, a gallon of rum, uh, about half the job got done. Um, <laughs> Robert E. Lee, it turns out, is in, I suppose, uh, one could have predicted this, the South Barracks. So it's hard to get him into the North Barracks for an eggnog party. Plus, he's Robert E. Lee, so he's got to stick up his butt. But uh, Benjamin G. Humphreys is in the North Barracks and is a, um, a roisterer par excellence and was easy to get uh into the uh to inveigle into the very center of the eggnog riot such that he rather than leading the mississippi men to uh crush the union 
at um, uh, Cemetery Ridge, instead is expelled from West Point and expelled from the army and does not get the necessary seasoning during the Mexican War that would have built him into the formidable Confederate general that he became. And instead, he became a time-serving Confederate political general who accomplished nothing particularly much, although was a effective leader of men at Gettysburg. Oh, well, there we go. Well, anything we can do to uh, shorten this of a war and uh, uh, kick at the Confederacy and have some eggnog along with that. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go back, right? If uh, I sure I can get Robert E. Lee, if you give me four, maybe five more runs at this eggnog party. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess there's the, the risk though of the eggnog party boiling over and having uh, unintended Yuletide side effects. Right. And also um, I would hesitate to uh, injure Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who goes on to become America's greatest expert in alchemy and flute music. Right. That's an important thing to preserve. And also, you don't want to start off the war on Christmas like uh, 150 years earlier. No, no, you do not want the the South and the North riven over whether or not to say happy holidays or what color to serve their coffee cups in. Yes, uh, that uh, would have to wait to a more sensible, rarefied time. Exactly, a time when you could discuss it uh, perhaps in uh, salons with your pinky finger extended right? Uh, while murmuring over cat videos. Well, uh, speaking of time and its uh, inexorable tread, I think it's time for us to call time on this podcast uh, perhaps a uh, quaff, a bit of uh, just ever so slightly unseasonable eggnog. Uh, but we'll rejoin you uh, all sober and ready for chapel next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Guzzle whipped eggs and whiskey alongside such patrons as... Tenant Reed. Wesley Griffin. Alex Johnston. The Redacted Files Podcast. And Ryan Lassiter. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 